Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Well, hey, everyone. I am here at the Strange Loop Conference in St. Louis, and I've got the pleasure of being seated across from Sam Ritchie, who's a software engineer at Stripe. And Sam was in to talk about just so stories for AI, explaining black box predictions. And in fact, he just jogged over here from delivering his talk. Yeah, it's like five blocks away. I had to hustle. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Sam. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started working in AI and machine learning. Sure, yeah, you want the, the just so story of my Exactly. Life. So this is fairly new. I guess the last year and a half I've been at Stripe, as I said, working on machine learning infrastructure. How did I get here? We were talking before this started about, you know, my, my kind of initial coding background is coming up in the functional programming world. Years ago, I guess the first thing that led to this was this large-scale, like, deforestation monitoring system I worked on. Okay. So this got me into, like, Hadoop and Clojure. And huh. this is sort of, a, it was a machine learning application. I had no idea what I was doing when I was on this, right? <laughs> and where were you working on that? So this was just a freelance thing with okay. a, a guy I used to race, like, flatwater kayaks with. Okay. And he moved off of the data science world. I was making apps, like, in my apartment in New York. Okay. I had a year in New York City. And, yeah, just wanted to... Well, the real, okay, so the reason I, I, it's like hard to put a narrative together in my life, man. The deforestation monitoring system was just this collaboration with, with a buddy who was doing work for the World Bank, though, right? Okay. So the idea was to build like a model that could, on the basis of these studies that happen every like five years or so, build a logistic regression that could predict for certain pixels in the tropics. The idea was like any spot you looked at, the goal was to get out some prediction of the chance that that piece of forest would be deforested in the next month. Okay. Right? And you're starting with satellite imagery? Exactly. exactly. Okay. We use the MODIS data set. So data came out every two weeks. The training data for this, though again, I, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. The training data for this was a study that this guy Matt Hansen had done, which looked at MODIS data from the year 2000, same data again in the year 2005. And then okay. they just went through and manually like, selected which pixels they thought were deforested and which weren't. Hmm. This is useful, and it backed like a lot of policy. There's a lot of work on you know reforestation and things like this. Right. A lot of money that went out from this study, but the plan was to do it every five years. And so a lot of money went into Indonesia, for example, to like work on deforestation there. The next time he did the study, or, or when our model came online, it was clear that like Indonesia was actually looking pretty good. It was not talking okay. the charts anymore. Okay. And like Myanmar was now the issue. Okay. So the goal was to get new data every two weeks. So what we did is. This is where the you know big data, functional programming stuff came right, in. Right. The goal was to go build from satellite data, like time series of what was happening during that five-year period, right? Okay. So use that as the training data. The prediction variable was what this guy Matt Hansen had said deforestation was. Right. And then we just march the time series forward and predict, does this now look like deforestation? Does this now... You end up with a map that you can scroll through that just shows the trends of deforestation moving through the world. Oh, wow. It's really amazing. Interesting. That, I haven't followed what's happened with that, but I think it's now, the World Resources Institute was the organization that was sponsoring us. I think this is out as like an open data set now, but okay. that was kind of my first taste of ML. I came at machine learning from the statistics side a little bit, okay. and it turns out that these are like the same field. 
they just have different words for things. And right, right. So you move from one to the other. You don't really know if you can bring anything over. But yeah, that, that was the first thing. That took me, uh, you know, I, I took all this like wonderful, nonprofit, amazing work I was doing and I let Twitter like recruit me to go do the same stuff on ads. <laughs> <laughs> the best minds of our world, making uh, people click it. ads, right? That's it, man. Yeah. So sold the soul for a little bit. But, you know, had a few years there building open source tech to do, again, like effectively the same sort of Hadoop-based stuff that we were working on before. We ended up open sourcing a lot of that work as this library called Summingbird, which Okay. Again, as we were saying, is like all monads all the time. Like it's it's a library that lets you write these like big streaming data computations and then run them on Hadoop or on like a real time streaming system or on both, and basically like separates what you want to compute from where you want to compute it. Okay. And it it's only relevant really because the final piece of this puzzle is what drew me to Stripe is that I was interested in machine learning. I was doing a lot of work on my own and studying and just trying to get up to speed and like right. Stripe had pulled this library in and was using it for their feature generation pipeline for a lot of their models internally. Okay. So it was like, I'm not the most qualified, like I don't have this amazing like data science background. I did have a hook in the infrastructure side. And uh-huh. so a lot of the work I do now at this intersection between how do you make features? How do you run the stuff at production scale? How do you ship models? The intersection between that and like what models are even worth shipping, like what should you care about, what should you put in the product, <laughs> super interesting for me. And right. it's been a really fun like year and a half or so, leading now to some work on this stuff we were talking about today. Okay, awesome, awesome. So why don't you tell us what you were talking about today? Yeah, so the talk today was on, in general, it was on this idea of how to explain the predictions that black box models make. Right. So this is like a term that's tossed around like a black box model uh-huh. is a model like a neural network is a black box model. A random forest is a black box model, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just kind of this term meant to express how like powerful and complicated these things are internally. The internal structure is very rich and varied. Mm-hmm. You know, a black box model is typically seen as difficult to understand or hard right. to explain. That's like it's hard to know what that really means, right? Like what does it mean to explain a black box model? So that was the general theme. The specific things I started with were the work we do at Stripe on fraud detection. You know, we use models that are as accurate as possible to try to catch fraud for merchants who sign up for Stripe. Yeah. At the same time, this black box property of we're just going to block charges and, you know, you as a merchant, like, you might know more about your business. We might block a charge that you think is a legit customer. And if we're just sort of telling you, like, look, the world is a better place if you accept our decisions, that's not totally appropriate. <laughs> And people don't trust us with this. And often what they've done is not used our product and gone to the system of very manual rules. You know, you go in, you, you say what you think fraud looks like. You're probably like cutting a lot more tissue out than you should. But, you know, you feel good about it because you made the decision. So there's a tension here between a black box model making decisions for you that you don't understand and something is not as effective, just strictly. Like right. A merchant does not know as much about fraud as some, like a a big company that is dealing with tens of thousands of merchants can. So the talk was about some tech we developed at Stripe to give people alongside our internal sort of suggestion or decision about what we're going to block, an explanation of why we did that. Okay. So it's a subtle problem. It was about the solution we, we came up with for that. And then about like why that solution is kind of not great and why it's not a, is it a real explanation? Is it not? And then we talked about a bunch of other techniques that the goal was to build up in the mind of 
I mean, I guess we'll talk about it here. Like, <laughs> there's a bunch of techniques to do this. Yeah. And it turns out that black box models often are like the most explainable models. They have such a rich structure that you can ask so many questions of them, really tease apart subtleties of an individual example in a way that you absolutely cannot with something like a logistic regression or a very simple model that you can just simulate in your mind as a human. That's counterintuitive. It is. That a black box model, you'd consider a black box model to be the most explainable model. Yeah, and I mean, I do it by just taking the definition and twisting it a little, but, <laughs> but I would argue that it's, it's fuzzy what people mean when they talk about this, right? There's a number of ways to frame this problem of is a model explainable or not, right? And so when you, how are you defining it leading up to the conclusion you've drawn? So I think the way in which people think a black box model is not understandable, you know, is it's the same way that like you could say if you asked me why I decided to go work at Stripe for something else and I just like printed out the contents of my brain and showed you the state of every neuron and every connection, this is not understandable, right? Like it's the truth. This is why I did it. Like the, the physical state of my mind just I couldn't do otherwise if, if you buy right. this sort of right. free will argument. But that's not what people mean, really, when they talk about human explanations, right? Mm -hmm. Like, when you talk about a human explanation, you want to know, okay, well, give me some narrative, give me some plausible reason why, in this case, like, not the entire, your brain has information from everything you've ever done. Give me, for this example, you know, maybe, maybe one way to explain the decision is, what would have had to change to make you change your mind, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a form of explanation. That's a kind of question that you can sort of ask of, a logistic regression, you can ask of simple models. When you get to things like image processing, where the features, the inputs to the model are tens of thousands of different pixels, each of which has individual weights in, say, a logistic regression. Like, that ability to look at a feature and see how much it affected the output, that kind of stops being helpful, right? Whereas with a neural network or something like this, you can, for an individual example, you can start, one technique I talked about in the talk is called LIME. And the idea here is that... That's Carlos Gestrin's work. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. So the idea here is that for an individual example, you can probe the model and see what would have happened had any individual thing changed, right? So you can build effectively like a little local linear model inside of this wild space that the neural network has trained, right? So because of this rich internal representation, overall, totally with you, like it's hard to explain why the model is doing what it's doing in aggregate. Just like it's hard to say why, like, you know, the entire population of a country is doing something. Or, But for any individual case, you can, in fact, build a story or build, more technically, like a local linear model, which will tell you what the most important aspects of that particular example were. Now, it's been a while since I've talked to Carlos about this. Mm -hmm. We'll put a link to the podcast I did with him in the nice. show notes. but. I was under the impression that the, the Lyme work, at least at that time, which was a year and change ago, yeah. like wasn't really being applied to, to neural nets. It was for you know, other types of models. The stuff that, we, that I mentioned in the talk, because we're not using neural nets at Stripe, but the okay. examples he's got are, like his techniques don't really depend on, in my understanding, the underlying model. The models. model themselves? Okay. Exactly. So you can sort of probe a neural net in that if you train a neural net, the example I showed in the talk was that he has actually in his paper, you have a neural net that recognizes huskies, say, okay. versus wolves. And so he had a, a beautiful example of a husky that was misclassified as a wolf. Mm -hmm. right? And so you look at it and you go, yeah, they look kind of the same. Like, I, I get why this is happening. I can yeah. build this explanation. The explanation that Lyme produces 
shows you the most relevant pixels to the decision. So like okay. what pixels, if they change, have the most input. And in this pathological example, it's like the snow underneath the husky, mm. right? So Interesting. Yeah. One example, and you can, you can, it's clear that like the training set you used clearly just had every wolf associated with snow. Model right. picked up on the wrong pattern. So you, you've explained this deep property of the neural net through one explanation, like just one image, right? Which exposed this rich structure. Okay. One last thing. I'm not trying to make like a, this is this controversial claim that black boxes are actually easy to explain. It's more just for the things that we would care about at Stripe, which is how, like that you care about with an image. Like why is this particular image misclassified? Right. Or why is this particular merchant getting blocked? Or why is this particular charge? You can come up with a much richer story about why that's true. And that seems to often have the property that if you look at enough of these and they're different enough, you can leach out some understanding of what the model is doing without actually having to go, you know, look at every path through every tree or the weights of every neuron. So you can treat the thing as a black box and get some insight into what patterns it extracted from uh, the data set you gave it. Okay. So the, the Lyme approach is doing what I guess sounds like almost like sensitivity analysis for the inputs. Sure. Right? Is that maybe a yeah, way to yeah, think yeah, about right. it? And then there are also approaches that are based on you know, kind of introspecting the layers of a neural network like Deep Dream and these other things, trying to get, well, this this network's looking at edges, and so mm-hmm. if it's misclassifying something, it's because it sees an edge wrong or something like that. Mm-hmm. Did you develop your own technique? We did. Or, okay, so t- tell, me, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so the technique that we developed, the ones we were just talking about are really good for actually understanding for some particular example of fraud or some merchant why the model did what it did. So, uh-huh. Or what would have to change to change the decision. Yeah. Now, you know, building a product that is meant to block fraud, you know, unfortunately, some of the merchants that sign up for Stripe sign up to go just run stolen credit cards through the system and collect money. The whole issue is that there are people who are testing cards, who are sort of committing fraud in this network. And because we're one level behind merchants, we have to be a bit careful about what we expose in terms of our explanations of why the models are doing what they're doing. Mm. If we were just to give, for every charge, our best, sort of most beautiful explanation of what would have to be different to not get blocked, yeah. you know, there's, you could probably weight this per merchant by trust and start to expose more and more as they're with you longer. And we do that through you know, individual like, customer relationships. But right. as far as a product, like, what do you want to see on the screen when, you're, when your card gets blocked? Like, the explanation that Lime produces is almost too good. It's, like, easy to game, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So the system we developed internally, I'll develop it here. It's a way that you can come up with an explanation for, basically a post hoc explanation of, that looks like a rule that the merchant could have implemented themselves, where if they deployed that rule, like, it would have caught the charge, and it would have agreed with the model in some high percentage of cases, Right. But it's not necessarily tied to anything internal about the model structure. So okay. I guess the subtlety here versus the other system is, and this is the, the title of the talk, is just so stories for AI. The idea here is that you can develop a sort of a, you know, ahead of time, it's hard to make predictions. That's why we have to use these models with rich internal structure. Once you know what's happened, once you know that the model thinks that this charge is fraudulent, it's much easier to go back and say, okay, given that I know that this is what the model said, I can go come up with an explanation for why the model did what it did. Mm. So like conspiracy theories are kind of an example of this, right? 
Okay. Once you know that the bomb right, went right, off right. in this particular building, you can come up with some crazy tale about how it got there. And yeah. it's like a much easier problem. There's also different, many explanations that will fit. Some are more credible, some are less credible, but it's a much easier task than actually predicting a decision. Is what you're ultimately doing some form of like dimensionality reduction or dimension compression? Like you've got all these internal variables in your model but you're trying to, it sounds like you're trying to map your story down to like these four public facing broad aggregate things. I wish it was, I'll tell you the algorithm. It's, I think it's a little less disciplined. Okay, so the the simple way to say it, or the the first pass at it, is that what we're trying to do is train like a decision tree on, it's basically a bad version of the model that's meant to predict what the model's going to do. Okay. So we want it to look like a decision tree because we want to be able to present some like the form, the, the output, I guess, of this model, we want to be some set of, some rule that the user could, could see. The irony, but, of course, you using a decision tree because it's explainable. It's explainable, right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's not very good, but... So that's the shape of what we want. And what the model looks like is basically a canned set of potential explanations, any one of which, if it applies to some charge you give me, like any one of which has high precision with respect to what the model would have chosen, right? So if my rule, if my explanation applies to some charge the model calls fraudulent in a test set, I wanna be sure that it also would have applied to many other charges, right? So if, if you just tell me like, if the explanation is, well, there was a charge on the card, this has very high recall, it catches a lot of fraud, has incredibly low precision, right? There's no sort of information contained in that statement. Mm-hmm. So. Again, the explanation model is a list of possible explanations sorted by their precision in descending order compared to the models, like what the model claims. What we do then is when a charge comes in, if the model claims that it's fraud, we then go to our explanation model and we just start looking through the explanations. And we find the first one that applies to the charge that has come in. So basically like what's a path through the decision tree? Looking at all the paths, not looking necessarily first at the features, just taking the outcomes and like trimming out anything that doesn't apply, which is the explanation that as you go down the list has the highest precision, but also applies to this one. That's the thing we expose to the user, right? Hmm. So it's sort of like a decision tree in that it has, it has the same structure as a decision tree, but you don't independently ask the explanation model and the forest and then present both of these. These probably wouldn't match, right? Because a lot of these, a lot of the explanations will, the explanations won't necessarily match up. But if you know what the model did, you can take your kind of bad model, your decision tree, you can trim all the paths that don't agree with the model and then show the highest precision path down to some leaf. Okay, so you've got your high fidelity model and your low fidelity model. The low fidelity model is the decision tree. You are, I mean, it sounds like you're running both of them in parallel on your input data. Yeah, you run the first one and then the second one gets... Features as input, it runs its thing, and again, like exactly like you're saying. So I'm not super clear on the part where you're trimming off the, like you're pruning this decision tree in some way. Or... Okay, so let's see if I can let's see if I can elaborate. And, then, that. and let's take a step back. So the input to this the second model decision tree is it's not your input data, and it's not the output of the first model. It's the features of the first model. Are you talking about the training or the prediction process? The prediction process. So for prediction, yeah, it's, yeah, so the, the input is in fact, yeah, okay, let, let's step back and frame this. 
So your first, like you said, first model is the black box, right? Second model is the decision tree. Or another way to look at it is this list of predicates, right? So what you need to evaluate the second model is the output of your first model plus all the features, mm -hmm. right? So the output and of the by features are we referring to the inputs or like weights or some internal? Sorry, good call. Something? See again, the statistics, machine learning, <laughs> crazy terms. <laughs> by features here, I mean like the things we know about the charge, like the the dictionary, the the inputs to to the black box. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So forget what's going on in the black box. You're totally right. Those Got are it. features as okay. well. The thing, the attributes we know about the charge. Okay. The variables. We first send those into the black box. We get out some decision from the black box. Right. We've chosen a threshold in advance. So all we care about is, does the model think it's fraud or not? Right. Okay. Now we take that. We go to the second model. We take the same inputs to the black box. Yep. And we go through this list, which is ordered from high precision to low precision. And we find the first path through the tree. Again, like it's important that they're ordered. We find the first path through the tree that... One evaluates the true as well, so agrees with the black box model. Well, that's it, that agrees with the black box model. Okay. There might be multiple paths that agree with the black box model, right? So this is the difference between just evaluating the decision tree. Mm -hmm. So we find the one that has the highest precision that does agree, and we return that as the explanation model, or as the explanation of the user. Okay. How do you even measure the results from a... I mean, if we're talking about... If we're talking about you know, whether the fraud is, the transaction is fraudulent or not, yeah. it's easy to measure the, the results there. How do you measure, like, the explainability of the result? There's a couple answers to this. One is, I think, a good answer. One is kind of unfortunate. The first answer is the, the way you can evaluate your explanation model is you want each individual explanation to have high precision. You want overall the entire set of explanations to have high recall, right? So you want, for any charge that comes in, you want a very high probability of having an explanation available, mm -hmm. right? And then for each explanation that you give, you want that to be as high precision as possible. So internally, like, that's one way you can evaluate this. I think what you're actually getting at is, like, what's the point of this? Like, how can you evaluate the effect of giving these to merchants and seeing if right. they actually mean anything? That, we, we're just kind of at the early days. We don't do a great job at this now. We don't have, I believe, much built into the product now to evaluate the actual thing we're trying to do, which is to take something that feels like a black box decision and give people some way to kind of relate or build a model in their mind for what this black box model is doing. Because again, each individual instance of fraud, they might be in a domain where they understand what's happening, right? They might be a charity site that is dealing with card testing. And if they see an instance of this, and then the model gives them an explanation that's a rule that, you know, Maybe it's not why the model did what it did, but it actually happens to match up in a lot of ways with the decisions the model would make for charges that look like this. Like That's a valuable piece of information that a merchant could then take that would, one, give them some insight into what fraud looks like, and two, and this is probably the real thing you want down the road, is to have people just trust what the model is doing in decisions they understand less. Right, right. right. Now, a little bit of what I talked about in the talk is that this is kind of pathological by itself. Like, you have to know the explanation is there to get you to trust the black box. Right. But you shouldn't trust the explanation unless you have some reason already to trust the black box. So it's, <laughs> it's like when Twitter says, oh, you should follow this person because, you know, Sam follows him and Oscar does too. Right. Like, that's not a reason. Yeah. Right. It's just, there's sort of an implied reason, but right. it's not what's actually happening behind the scenes. Well, I mean, part of what I was getting at was, 
you know, there's all kinds of questions that it raises, like how granular you want your explanations to be, the degree to which people actually care about the explanations. Like there's, you know, the book Influence, Robert Cialdini. You know, basically we rejected this charge because we rejected this charge. Like putting the word reject there just has a huge, you know, provides a a huge degree of acceptance. Yep. Just based on, you know, human biology and... So how, how do you how do you wrap your head around like how granular you need these explanations to be, or is it just like you started somewhere and that's kind of how much are you investing in that process? I guess. So internally, we care. Well, we care internally and externally. But like the initial reason we created these these kinds of models was to try to give our risk analysts and our I guess account managers some way to understand as deeply as they can like what's happening with some decision with you know, a charge that a merchant called to ask about. So this is a case where you're not really trying to persuade the risk analysts. They have a vested interest in learning as much as possible about this so that they can, you know, sound knowledgeable or be knowledgeable yeah. like when they're talking. But you still don't want to give them the internal representation of the black box it's, model. That's that... right. The case I've just described leaves it up to the, you know, the person on the phone to like hide information that seems sensitive. Right. Whereas when you have the model do it, you know, I don't have a great answer for this. We're, we're not, like, it's a, it's a really interesting question. What level of granularity, you know, what you're really trying to do for a merchant, how you, how you have them, how you give them the, the ability to, like, let you know what they care about. Or maybe you give them the ability to, you know, sort of request more information right. and you can expand this thing. But how many explanations do you have? Each model has roughly like 80 possible explanations. That usually gets like full coverage on this thing. Okay. So there's like 80 possible explanations that could apply. Okay. Right? I'm comparing it to like credit reporting. Yeah. There's like what, all of eight explanations, at yeah, least yeah, the yeah. ones that you commonly see? Yeah, I mean, maybe this, this might help us out that like the rest of the world is just like, there's a sort of argument by authority for like, scary thing is happening in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and deal with it. So this is, I mean, the reason I kind of, I was interested in giving this talk and doing this work is these are a lot of the open questions in this, in this field, right? Like there's the goal here of getting a customer to trust us. That doesn't mean anything without some internal, you know, sense of accuracy or reason to actually trust the model. If you've got the Husky snow dog problem going on internally, right. But then you're talking people into accepting the decisions. That's kind of pathological. And so what the talk, what I, what I was interested in after this, that kind of expands beyond Stripe is that, though we probably will have to deal with this, or I probably will personally in the next year or so, you know, the EU has this, what's it, the general data? GDPR. The GDPR, exactly. The GDPR, the GDPR gives you this, you know, right to an explanation. This is right. one of the clauses. Now, after working up to this talk and giving it, one of the messages I have is, it's, it's not clear what this means, right? There's two forms of explanations. There's many forms, but of these two, if people are having a right to this sort of explanation, like you said, to just have some emotionally triggering word like rejected in their explanation that's meant to convince them of something that's going on, this is actually not good. Like, right. I don't think this is the intent of right. what's in that law. Right? Absolutely. On the other or hand... absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. On the other hand, if you're giving people like incredibly detailed explanations about why the model did what it did, well, this is good, but it, it's potentially gameable. You know, pot- like, I guess the core issue here is that you start... Yes. An element of, I mean, like domain appropriateness, for lack of a better term. Like, mm-hmm. if you 
you know, you could, you know, one way to, you, you describe one way of kind of skirting GDPR is by, by, you know, having just this, you know, this, you were rejected. That's the explanation, right? That's yeah. certainly not in the spirit of the law, okay. you know, but on the other side, if you said, well, the, you know, the third neuron and, you know, layer five of our neural network, yeah, you yeah. know, spit out a, a 0.6, and yeah. that's why you're rejected. That's, that's also inappropriate, even that's though it's right. way more detailed and that's way right. more granular. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really mean, though it's, it's a good characterization of it, I wasn't necessarily saying that that would be a way to skirt the rule, though it certainly would, right? If you give people these, okay, you've been rejected. Right. You know, that character of explanation, though, about, hey, we don't know why the model worked, but here's a plausible explanation. I guess in, in thinking about this, I think the problem with that, if you did, if that was what was adopted by, say, the courts or, you know, a car, for example, having to spit out an explanation of why it did what it did that caused some damage. Mm -hmm. This doesn't teach you much about the core problem of that I think we're trying to solve here, which is there are things we care about in the world, and then there are the goals that we give to our models when they get trained, right? You have some prediction target, and it's just a fact that we don't, we don't know enough about ourselves, about what we care about, about how we work, to encode all of our ethics, all of these things in the goals of a model. And so when you can ask a model, like I think my understanding here, my interpretation of this is when you can ask a model for an explanation of why it's doing what it's doing, what you're doing is you're monitoring whether or not it picked up the things you actually care about from the data that was easy to encode, right? And what do you do then? What you do if you find a mismatch, the only thing that makes sense is to take the thing that wasn't quite there and to figure out how to encode that in the goal of your model that you're training, right? So you have, on the one hand, this, again, kind of pathological case where models start optimizing for whatever they're optimizing for, right? Once you start feeding data back, like model decisions back into its own training set, you start to get this odd effect of like putting a copy on the copier over and over. And then you've got this other parasitic model that's like just justifying whatever's happening under the hood. <laughs> this is not right, good. Right, right. That's the downside. The upside is that we're forced to really clarify what we care about in technical terms, right? Like you can take these ethical concerns. This is what I guess the law attempts to do. Through it's almost this. like your sidecar model is like a, almost like a unit test for your regular sure. model. Is it, is it encoding the kind of the way of thinking about yes. the relationship between the transactions and the judgments? Yep. Like in a conversation, if, if you explain, you say something to someone, they repeat it back in a slightly different way. What's the point of this? You're, you're just demonstrating that you've absorbed the content by right, stating right. it in a different way. And if you go, yeah, I totally get it, you know, and just say something insane, right. we got to talk again, you know? <laughs> so that I think is what's so interesting about this tension between the different kinds of explanations, the subtleties of what's going on inside the model. Right. So one example of uh, like an, an ethical concern that people have been talking about, there's a couple of folks internally at Stripe where actually speaking of the GDPR, like one concern for a model is that it's going to pick up on some kind of implicit like pattern in the data and start treating like people of different genders, a different race, like different groups. Sure. It's going to have different considerations for them. Now, if this first kind of model, there's a Peter Norvig quote I gave in the talk, can give you an explanation that just kind of ignores what's actually going on and gives you a plausible reason why you know, somebody might have been rejected from a job. Like say at Stripe, we start turning a model loose on hiring, right? Mm -hmm. If you can figure out what is different about what you care about, which is this sense of 
this kind of vague sense maybe that everyone like deserves a fair shot, etc. You find that your model is not doing that. You're then forced to encode this more formally. So Google has a great post which says this in a nice way, which is like one way to encode this is to say that along any split you care about, along any group, along any like business type or something like this, let's make sure that the false positive rate is identical across all these things. And so this then can get fed back into the, like once you realize that if this is not happening, you can then feed this back into the training process for your black box models. They then will kind of formally encode the ethics you care about in the world. And then you move on to the next problem, of course. Right, right. right. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, just even circling back to the kind of the beginning, the notion of explainability. Mm-hmm. The model you're describing, like the second model, you could argue it's not really explaining the first model. It's sure. explaining, it's offering a justification. Yeah. Right. I yeah, mean, and you right. kind of said that, totally but we right. talk about this broadly as solving the explainability problem, but it doesn't necessarily offer any insight whatsoever to what's actually happening inside your model. That's right. Which That's right. I guess, you know, it, it, you know, we're kind of getting into semantic land here, but you know, explainability yes. of the model versus explainability of the output. But I think they're, you know, at the very least, I think, you know, for folks that are you know, thinking about this stuff, it makes sense to at least try to be clear on which one you're trying to achieve. I think that's a, that's a great takeaway. I mean, to wrap back to what you, you, when you were talking about, like, if you give someone an explanation on the, the state of the neurons, you know, one thing that comes up a lot in these, in these papers, these, these, these papers that are trying to talk about how to formally encode explanations, is this idea that or these casual references to how humans reason and how humans explain their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of taken for granted at this point that the way we work is separate from the explanations we give for our actions, right? And so this is one thing that comes up when you read about the GDPR is that one critique, I guess, of this clause is that we're asking for things from our black box models that we don't ask from judges because there's just no conceivable answer, right? So it's like you said, it's sort of getting into semantics, it's kind of getting into sort of whatever philosophy I can sort of pull out of a a software engineering (laughs) career. But I think it's really important to contrast the two, right? Mm-hmm. And say, you know, what do we mean? What are we asking for? There, there's this naive idea that because it's a model, because it's an algorithm, there's like a clear answer to why it did what it did. Or because it was something you could turn the crank on. Right. But that's not right at all. It's, it's much more subtle than that. Awesome. Awesome. So is any of the work that you've done in this area published? We're planning in the next few weeks on writing more about this and okay. I think publishing the algorithm. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm sure folks would be very interested in learning more about it. And once again, we'll drop the link to Lime and the conversation with Carlos. And are there any other efforts at explainability that figured heavily into the there work that are, you did there? Um, I'll give you some links to put in the, in the show notes too. Okay. But we've got, I mean, there's so much stuff going on. There's a DARPA program now, an explainable AI. Stuart Russell at Berkeley has, I think it's called I cannot remember the name. Not human compatible, maybe human compatible AI. Okay. There's a track at NIPS about this issue. I mean, this is really coming up as, of course, we, we have to get into this. It's coming up as one of the core approaches toward this problem of like AI and algorithmic safety, right? Which can often be this fuzzy, scary conversation. Yeah. For me, I think this grounds it very heavily. Like, what are we worried about? Kind of one thing is the leeching of meaning from just letting things that are loose, that are really, really accurate, but haven't encoded the things you care about in the world, right? And explanations are kind of our tether on this. Yeah. And yeah, so I'll, I'll send more links and I'm going to do some writing on this in the next week that I'll, I'll send over as well. That okay. Just awesome. the full brain dump. 
Awesome. Looking forward to it. Well, thanks so much, Sam. Always great to have another Sam on the show. <laughs> yeah, thank you, sir. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Sam or any of the topics covered in this show, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 73. To follow along with our Strange Loop 2017 series, visit twimlai.com slash stloop. Of course, you can send along your feedback or questions via Twitter to at twimlai or at Sam Charrington or leave a comment right on the show notes page. Thanks again to Nexosis for their sponsorship of the show. Check out twimlai.com slash talk slash 69 to hear my interview with the company founders and visit nexosis.com slash twimmel for more information and to try their API for free. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.